0: Why don't you turn to 1 John chapter 1 with me. Amen. (laughs) We could have sang a little bit longer, huh? Yeah. 1 John chapter 1. Last week, we looked at verses... 5 through 10, and we looked at the warning that John was giving. Right? We we saw in 1 John chapter 1, we're going to read those verses again, verse 5 through 10. We saw three if we say sayings, statements. So look at them with me. Verse 5 this is the message we have heard from him, from Christ, proclaimed to you God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Then here's the first if we say saying, right? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we what? We lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Here's our second if we say statement. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 9, here's the counterpart though. If we confess our sins rather than conceal or lie or walk in our... if, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Third and final if we say statement. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. So last week, we gave the warning that John gives in these verses, right? If, if we say we are in Christ, yet we're living in habitual, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, we're lying to ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves, we don't practice the truth. How can we who are in the dark, or how can we, yeah, who are in the darkness say that we're in the light? We're, we're deceiving ourselves. And we talked about the extent of that. Then we talked about what was happening during the day. There were those who were saying, uh, I've never sinned. They rejected the actual depravity of man, a sinful nature, and talked about a perfectionism that can come even from being born. Well, you're lying also. You're deceiving yourself. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we looked at the final one. If we say, We have no sin or have not sinned. There's a continuation, meaning once I've been saved, now I can actually be perfect. If you think that you, on a daily basis, don't have sin in your life, you're lying. You're deceiving yourself. In fact, by doing so, saying this, you're claiming God is a liar. And we're going to look at that more clearly tonight. And so the warning was to examine yourself, to search your heart, to see if there be any wicked way in you. And to come to the light. And we, we talked about how we need to be honest about our sin. And this has to be the first step in our walk with Christ. And our daily walk with Christ. Bringing things to the light. It's one of the points that John is making. And verse 9 is our focus tonight. And in verse 9 is going to discuss why we can with confidence and with hope and with joy expose our sin. Or have our sin exposed. That kind of seems like an oxymoron, right? I mean, a lot of people today live like they believe the gospel. They believe in forgiveness. They believe in repentance and sanctification. Yet they, they are stuck in this mire, mud pit of... I can't let anybody figure out that I'm struggling. <laughs> I can't let anybody see that I am I have issues. I have anger problems. I have lust issues. I am dishonest. I'm greedy. I'm, I'm lazy. All these things. It's like we, we work so hard as Christians to hide the depths of our sinful nature or our struggles. And if you remember John's purpose, Chase has mentioned this several times, there's four reasons that John writes this letter. You see it. He tells all four reasons in this entire letter. Number one is John writes this letter to promote full joy. He believes, and this is the message that Christ gave him, that believers ought to have full joy. And that mask wearing is not joyful. The second reason John writes this letter is because he wants to prevent believers from sinning. And again, if you're concealing, hard to do. He wants to protect us from false teachers, number three. And number four provide full assurance of salvation. All right, so let's consider the importance then of confessing sin rather than concealing or hiding sin in all four of those purposes. I'll pose rhetorical questions. Can you have full joy while living with hidden sin? Rhetorical. Think about it. Can you experience full joy living with hidden sin? I think the obvious answer is No, you're overcome with shame or guilt or maintaining a double life or feeling like you can't expose yourself or your needs. All right, second question. Can we be prevented from further sin by living with hidden sin? Can you be prevented from going further in sin by concealing your sin? Third question. Can you be protected from false teaching if you're living with hidden sin? And fourth one, can you actually have assurance of your salvation if you are living with hidden sin? Especially if you are actively hiding it. And John's point is, no. You can't experience full joy. You can't be prevented from sin. You can't be protected from false teachers. And you cannot have full assurance that you are indeed saved if you are actively practicing sin in such a way that you're actually even concealing it and 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 just just so we make this clear john's point is this there's two options there's either you confess your sin or you conceal your sin now when we think of concealing what we think is hiding it okay right you think of i'm putting it in a corner nobody can see this but john is exposing something even more Because if there's only two options... Confessing is... Namely, we're going to talk about biblical confession... But namely, let's talk first and foremost... Going to God. I am sinning. Uh, and, And confession has this context of... I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your spirit's power. The opposite of that isn't only hiding sin. The opposite of confessing is also not confessing sin. Meaning, you can actually be living in sin... Not even hiding it, you're just not confessing it. Make sense? You see what I'm saying here? So so John is saying, if you are living this way, where you're either concealing and you're practicing and living in hidden, unconfessed sin that can't come to the light, isn't coming to the light, therefore can't be sanctified, you shouldn't have assurance. Of your salvation, this this indeed is the warning that we spent you know the time last week. This is why there are passages like Matthew chapter seven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, I did many many works in your name. I prophesied it in your name, and God says, Get away from me! Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness! I never. Knew you. It's why Hebrews warns in Hebrews chapter six. The pastor who's writing this message, he says, you know, there you can taste the goodness of God. You can share and experience of the Holy Spirit. You can experience the goodness of God's Word in a fellowship and actually not be saved. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, examine yourselves. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with these things. Confirm your election and your calling. And so there's warnings all throughout the New Testament, and Old Testament too, that are basically saying, hey, I'm trying to tell you, God is a God of grace and mercy, praise the Lord, but your darkness needs to come to light. Now this isn't works-based, of course we know, it's God's great call and drawing, and this is the assurance that he gives in believers, and the confidence that I can have confidence and hope and joy in exposing my sin. Again, I I mentioned this seems like an oxymoron. We live in a world today that says, basically, uh, the moment I see weakness in you, I'm going to judge. And, And we live in the context of a body, too, of professing believers, often more times than not, Where people feel like they can't expose their sins, they can't confess their sins, they can't come clean because they will be judged, they'll be slandered, they'll be gossiped against, they'll be excommunicated, all these types of things. And God is saying the exact opposite. And this is a word of warning to believers. You know, Paul David Tripp does a great job in his parenting seminar where he talks about parents. When you find out something about your kids... Remember this, Jeremy, right when we watch this? When when all of a sudden you find out something that your kids are doing and they're hiding from you that's wrong, that is God being gracious and exposing what is happening. So rather than just treating it as a moment of uh, discipline, you know, drop kicking them through the ceiling, that's a moment where you go, Lord, thank you for exposing sin in my child's life that I can now deal with. And then as a parent, you have... The responsibility with tough and tender love to come alongside and say, it's not that you've broken my law, you've broken God's law. And it's serious, and God is holy, and sin is serious, and it separates you from God. But what a gracious thing that now this has come to light, because now we can deal with it. And guess what? He's also a God of grace and mercy and he's promised to work in your life if you belong to him if you confess him as lord right if you're if you've been given a new heart he will give you new affections and he's promised that he will cause you to bear good fruit, and good fruit. it's it's a beautiful thing and we need to practice this in the body that when sin is exposed we come with unbelievable sincerity and love and we say sin is serious god is holy right and and, and say So much so that all throughout history, if you look at accounts of the Old Testament, when you came face to face with the holy God in your sin, praise God that today, under his forbearing grace and mercy and Christ now today, those in Christ that he doesn't absolutely not, he's poured his wrath on his son so that we can experience his grace and his mercy. God, you're so good. (laughs) God, you're so, so good. we just sang it. So, the theme this year, if you remember, it's on Tyler's shirt, abide. Abide. It's mentioned as Chase has talked about 23 times in this letter. It's the key to living as a Christ-centered life. And I want you to think about the, con- uh, the theme abide in context of confessing sin or concealing sin. Again, these verses, 1 John 1, 5-10. One of the reasons, unknowingly, sometimes, that professing Christians don't abide in God's Word, again, I say sometimes unknowingly, is because they may be blind to their sin, deceiving themselves, which is separating them from God, hence it hinders intimacy in time with His Word, and it also keeps them from understanding what Scripture is saying. This is sometimes an unknowing thing, which is the importance of confessing sin or having sin exposed. And then sometimes knowingly, People just don't like what the Bible demands from them. Don't like the conviction. Don't like the direction. Don't want to, sur- to surrender to a master. And so they actively avoid abiding in God's word. But John's whole purpose of his letter is to draw people in to the loving kindness of our Father. So how we handle sin in our life is of the utmost importance to our joy sanctification, our protection and assurance. Those four words are the four purposes of this letter. And what John shows at the very beginning and all throughout this letter, it's one of the main points of John's letter, is that how we handle sin reveals how we can experience joy, sanctification, protection, assurance. So what I want to do tonight is I want to break down verse 9 into two parts. Okay? If you look at verse 9 again, if um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first part of tonight's message is that first section. If we confess our sins. I want to talk about what is biblical confession. What is biblical confession? The second part is he is faithful and just to forgive, us and to clen- or forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, in other words, I want to show then when we confess biblically, what is God's response? All right? Part one what is biblical confession? What is biblical confession? I think when we look at God's word as a whole, we see several factors involved in biblical confession. I want to break it down into three uh, things tonight. First, with biblical confession, There is a cause. So number one, the cause. The cause of biblical confession. As we talked about last week, if we say we do not have sin, um, or we do not sin or don't have sin, we lie. We deceive ourselves. Well, the Bible teaches us, as we've mentioned, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3, 23. Romans 3, 9 through 11 talks about how there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Romans chapter 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible for them to do so. Ephesians 2 talks about how we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Titus chapter 3, such were some of you before you were washed. So we know that there is no one who is without sin, okay? So first, the first part of biblical confession is indeed realizing we are sinners. So what's a cause? What causes us to confess? An awareness of the fact that we are sinners. But that isn't the extent of what the Bible teaches as the cause. Here's why. Many people know that they have sinned and don't confess their sin. Meaning, many people can say, oh yeah, I was born depraved. Oh yeah, I have a sinful nature. But they don't actively, practically confess our sins. And by the way, there's a lot of people who look at First John chapter 1, verse 9 and say, this isn't something that a believer should be doing consistently and constantly. Because they're under Christ, they're, uh, they're covered by Christ's blood, is forgiveness, they're no longer under God's wrath, so this is like, this is a salvation verse. You're justified and it's fine. I 1000% disagree with that, and I hope to show that tonight. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 is something that you should be doing daily. And here's what I mean. An understanding of knowing you are a sinner and have a sin nature and are depraved is absolutely crucial to the cause of confession, but it isn't the extent. There is another factor here. It's not only acknowledging that you are a sinner, but recognizing daily that there is sin still present in your life. There are areas that need to be sanctified. You are not perfect today. You will not be perfect tomorrow unless you're taken home to be with the Lord. You were not perfect yesterday. You have work today to be done in your spiritual life. So one of the causes of biblical confession is acknowledging every day there is sin in my life. There's a war between two natures now, as Paul talks about in Romans, that needs to be exposed. Sin in my life today needs to be exposed. It needs to come to light. It needs to be dealt with so that I can live in the fullness of joy Under God's mercy, in His light, with sanctification, with protection from false teaching, and with full assurance of my salvation. Indeed, assurance of my salvation comes when I go, Oh, that's sin, God, and then repentance. That is what causes assurance. Now, we may need help here, all right? This is the cause. This is what causes us to confess an awareness, not just that we're sinners, but that we daily sin and daily need to confess. And we do absolutely need help here. We may be living in blindness to our own sin. We may not realize that there are issues in our life. We may be so hardened from rebellion or wandering or whatever, that like David, we need somebody like Nathan to come and give a little story and then say, Tyler, you are that man. Like Nathan did to David. We may need a brother or a sister in Christ to confront us privately. We may need a spouse or a parent or a child or a pastor to come and expose sin. I'm concerned. I see this in your life. That's not judgmental. It's not legalistic. It is one of the most beautiful acts of love. In fact, if you see sin in a brother or sister's life and you ignore it, and you don't confront it, that is the definition of being unloving. God is calling you as believers to be active in each other's sanctification. And so we not only need to be doing that for others, we also need to have enough humility that I can handle it. if Zach Bailey comes to me and says, hey, awkward, sorry, but... You're being a jerk to me. <laughs> right? You, you have to be humble enough to accept correction from people. But here we have, okay, you may be limited in understanding the depths of your sin. And you might be able to deceive yourself. Well, other people are absolutely limited as well. And you may be deceiving them. Even other people are limited in their ability to know us and see into our life, which means ultimately we need God and His Word to expose our sin. In Psalm chapter 19, beginning in verse 12, David says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. In Psalm 139, he says something similar. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. In other words, David has this awareness of going, I'm limited and sometimes blind and sometimes hardened. You see the depths of my heart. Even those around me may be too intimidated to come to me. They're limited in their ability to see into my heart. I'm coming to you. Expose what I don't see. Right now, so that I might confess it and come to the light. So the cause of confession is an awareness not just that I'm a sinner, but that I still have a sinful nature that I daily need to be exposed through my own self-examination, through loving, godly rebukes from others, from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Now, listen really quick. This means that you should put this into practice, right? The, the whole point of these types of things, preaching, exegeting the word of God, teaching, is so that you can then go, oh, and now my prayer life is changed. When I go home, I'm, I'm saying, Lord, all right, what in my life, what in my heart is not right? What needs to come to the light? And we're, we're just, just scratching the surface of why this is important and the hope that comes from this. So biblical confession, number one, there's a cause. Number two, there's a motive. The Bible teaches that biblical confession needs to have a biblical cause and it needs to have a biblical motive. And here's why. People can agree with everything I just said in point one and yet not continue in biblical confession, though they may confess, right? Biblical confession, in other words, isn't me just going, oh, I just yelled at my wife. Okay, God, I yelled at my wife. That's not the extent of biblical confession. It's not even going, I'm aware that that was sin. I'm aware that I shouldn't do that, and so I'm confessing. <sighs> He's faithful and just to forgive me. That is not the extent of biblical confession. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see that Paul has in love rebuked and exposed sin at the church in Corinth actually over and over and over And Paul wrote a letter that he's talking about, um, and in verse 8, he picks up and he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, so Paul's exposed sin, he's rebuked them, he goes, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Well, why doesn't Paul regret causing grief in somebody's life? He says in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And here we we go in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas, here's the other kind of motive or grief, worldly grief produces death. Verse 11, he explains this godly grief. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Here's the fruit. An eagerness to clear yourselves indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. All right, let me explain this. What we see here is there are two kinds of grief, and they produce two different types of fruit. Both of these griefs, godly grief and worldly grief, are results of motive, Motive is what is driving godly grief. Motive is what is driving worldly grief. Your fruit, right, Uh, your fruit ultimately of your confession and your grief will be shown in your motive. So worldly grief is a worldly motive, and it produces death. What is that? Well, it remains in the dark. It's one that has thrived on concealing sin. It is a fear first and foremost of losing things. Losing idols or being caught, being punished. So here's an example of worldly grief. You're hiding, hiding sin in this corner. All of a sudden it comes to light and worldly grief goes, shoot, I got caught, but I still want to do this. And I don't want to lose my reputation and I don't want to lose my friendships and I don't want to be punished. And as soon as this all ends, I plan on expressing a certain view Coming off like, I'm okay, I understand, I'm humble, putting on a mask and going right back in to continue what I'm doing. That's worldly grief, and it produces death. That is wrong motive in biblical confession. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. What is godly grief? Godly grief, even if it's you've been caught, even if it's an exposing of your sin or it's your own confession, it is this, an eagerness to clear yourself. Or... To now be a man or a woman of integrity. It, it is not just forget it ever happened. It is a I don't want to be that person anymore. It's an indignation over sin. It's fear of the Lord. It's longing for restoration and intimacy with God. It's passion for God and godliness. It's, and it's an acceptance of whatever punishment God may deem fit to give or allow. We can deceive ourselves about motive. And we can even deceive others, but we cannot deceive God. Why do you want to confess your sin? What is your goal? Is it worldly grief and guilt? Is it that you've been caught, or you don't want to lose friendships, you don't want to lose possessions, you don't want to be punished, or is it godly grief? Have you such an eagerness to be a person of integrity? And you have a hatred for sin? Have you been reminded and awakened to the fear of the Lord? And you long to be restored to intimacy with Him? Do you have an increased passion for God and godliness? And are you willing to accept any punishment that may come because of your sin? Knowing ultimately God is gracious. And He will forgive you. And He will cleanse you. And He will lead you forward in sanctification. This was David in Psalm 51. We sang it tonight. It's perfect. This was David in Psalm 51. This was the man in James chapter 4 who was wretched and mourned and wept over his sin. This was the motive of David in Psalm 139, "The search me, O God, know my heart, try me test me." It then says this: "And lead me in the way everlasting." It was the point of verse or chapter 19. He wanted to be kept from presumptuous sins and be forgiven and in faults that he would be blameless and innocent of great transgression and that the words of his mouth, the meditation of his heart would now be acceptable to God in his sight. So so here's what's important to know about worldly grief and godly grief or motives in general with with confessing sin. Both griefs are motivated by loss. Watch this. Biblical confession has the motive of a fear of loss. I don't want to lose something. Worldly grief fears worldly loss. Godly grief is concerned with the same loss that John is writing about in this letter. Godly grief goes, I don't want to lose my joy found in God. I don't want to lose sanctification and the fruit of keeping you step with the Spirit. I don't want to lose protection from the enemy and from false teaching. I don't want to lose assurance. I want to be restored to intimacy with God. I want to have fellowship with God and with others. And I know that that means my motive is not that I don't want to lose what's in the darkness. I don't want to lose what's in the light. And I am willing to leave the darkness by God's grace. That is the godly motive. Now I want to look at one final passage here about motive. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 11 says this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay, we should be thinking, you're going to see it a couple of times here. First John, darkness and light, darkness and light. It says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, instead expose them. Rather, whether it's your own partaking of darkness or others. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, First John, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Alright, now notice, notice here, we must not take part in sin. Rather, we must be exposing sin. We must bring sin from darkness to light. Confess it, rebuke it, confront it. And verse 13 through 14 shows that this is what it means to come from darkness to light, as we talked about last week. First John chapter 5, or chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, right? If we say we have fellowship with him while we live in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So coming to light, we see in Ephesians 5 and 1 John 1, not only is exposing sin, but it's what causes Christ to shine on us. Because he takes no part of the work of darkness. And this is the point of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Confess our sins. Why? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a cause. What causes you to confess? I'm a sinner. But not just that I'm a sinner. I'm sinning every day, and I need you. This And this isn't a abuse of grace. Let me sin as much as I want, or do whatever I want, right, today because I can just confess it, and He's faithful and just. No, no, no. This is a as I am changing, I am becoming, in fact, this is the beautiful work of sanctification and growth in Christ. You become more and more aware of your sin. Right? As I'm being sanctified, I'm more aware of how much more I need sanctification. So every day, Lord, I'm saying, expose it, I'm going to confess it, in my motive is not so that I can experience the benefits of God but still live in darkness. You're deceiving yourself. The motive is, I want intimacy with you. I want full joy. I want full sanctification. I want full assurance. I want full protection. This is the motive driving me. But there's one final part of biblical confession, and that is the mode. The cause, the motive, the mode. Ultimately, this is really kind of where the rubber meets the road with confession. And what I mean by the mode is how you confess. There is a need for incredible discernment here, and wisdom, and patience. We don't want to be slanderers, and we don't want to be slandered. We don't want to be gossipers, and we don't want to be gossiped against. And we don't want to unload burdens on people that can cause them to sin. We don't want to unnecessarily hinder someone else's sanctification or the effectiveness of their ministry or our own ministry. In other words, I want to to show three modes of confessing sin. First is that all sin must be confessed to God. Every sin in your life must be confessed to God. That's going to be the given. Don't even talk about it, okay? All sin. However, the point of this first mode is that some sin needs only to be confessed to God. Let me explain. In Psalm chapter 32, verse 5, the psalmist said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David, though he is publicly rebuked, and though I'm sure there were moments of confession, he says something in Psalm 51 that's important. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, wait a second. He totally sexually, sexually assaulted Bathsheba. He, he manipulated his position, and he caused her to become pregnant, commit adultery. He lied and deceived, manipulated, and ended up killing another man. This whole process of rejection and rebellion lasted about a year before he was confronted. And that David has the audacity to say, against you, you only have I sinned? Has he not sinned against Bathsheba? Or her husband? Or the other people fighting the war? Or his own people, his family? Well, absolutely, right? He He has committed sins in some regards of harming them, bringing harm upon them. His sin has affected them. But his sin is only against God. And and here's the reality. Christ can handle the weight of all of your burdens, of all of your guilt, of all of your shame. He's promised to do that. And there may be sin that is taking place in your secret life or that is something that you're working on your head. It, can be, it might be a thought issue. You might say, you know what? I don't look at pornography. I'm not committing adultery, but my thought life is a mess. And all of a sudden, because you don't do these things that could end up being visible to other people, you might think it's okay. That sin is between you and God. Now, initially, that needs to be confessed to God. It may need to be confessed to somebody else. We're going to get to that in a second. But the point is, some sin only needs to be confessed to God. Because he alone can forgive and cleanse. And sometimes if we confess confess to others, it can bring harm upon others. It can unload guilt and burdens on them. And you might say, oh, I'm dealing with this. I just need to get off my shoulders. And so in a very selfish way to make you feel better, you go, boom. And then you go, oh, I feel so much better. And what you've just done is you've caused a lot of stress and burden and weight and guilt on somebody who was never meant to bear the weight of your shame and your sin. Some sin needs to be confessed to God only. However, don't go, phew, now I can hide. (laughs) Because the whole point of this is that sin must be exposed. No drop should be left in here. Some sin needs to be confessed to a brother or a sister who is holy and wise and mature in their faith. And here's why you can't get victory over your secret sin. If you find yourself living in habitual sin, where you are constantly giving giving over to thought life issue, or, or greediness, or laziness, or you have so manipulated your schedule that you can sin at different times and nobody will know and find out, And you've been going, God, I sinned again. And you're experiencing that guilt and that shame, and you're going, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm trying to confess it. I'm trying to expose it to light, and I can't have victory. At that point, you should pray sincerely about who you should go and confess to. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it is an older brother in Christ or an older sister in Christ, same sex, all right? Maybe it's an elder. Or a pastor. But at that point, if you cannot get victory over secret sin, you ought to confess. In fact, James chapter 5 talks about this in the context of the elders of a church. Verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great, has great power as it is working. There are times where you need to confess your sin to someone else. And some sin... Needs to be even more public than that. Some sin needs to be confessed to those whom you have wronged. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 says to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So there's this point of, hey, I'm confessing my sin to the person I've wronged i They're bearing with me. They're forgiving me. I'm forgiving them. Ephesians 4 says something similar. We talked about this several weeks ago on Sunday morning. Laboring for fellowship. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is all to be the point of maintaining unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So unity in the church. How do you do this? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Well, here's the thing. All of those assume... Their sin. Right? I only need to bear with somebody in love and be humble and gentle if sin is being exposed. So the whole point of Ephesians 4 maintaining the unity of the body is in the context of dealing with sin. Exposed sin. Maybe even confessed sin. Matthew chapter 5 is a popular passage with this subject. Verse 23-24 through If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There are a lot of helpful resources out there about when do I confess my sin to another, how public should my confession be, things like that. A lot of what you'll read is that the extent of your confession should match the extent of your sin. However public your sin should probably be how public your confession. And there is great discernment here. You should take time to prayerfully consider and be led by the Spirit, not emotions in confession. Meaning, your motive and your cause should direct your mode. Your cause and your motive should direct your mode of confession. All right. That wasn't an exhaustive discussion on that, but for the sake of getting really where I want to get, I'm going to move on. So now that we've dealt with biblical confession, I want to move to the second part of this verse. If we confess our sins, what happens? In other words, we are to confess our sins, John shows. Don't conceal, confess. Why? Because if you biblically confess, God does something. He does something. Verse 9 says, so what does God do? What does verse 9 say that God does if you biblically confess? Don't conceal, confess. Why? There's four things that we see here in the second part. He is faithful and just to forgive us, from our sin, uh, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are four things that we see here that God does or that can provide for us joy, can provide for us sanctification, can provide for us protection, and can provide for us assurance that God does according to biblical confession. Number one... Here's what God does. Number one, God is faithful to forgive your sin. Now, here, clearly the assumption and the promise is for those who are in Christ. God does not forgive the sin of those who spend an eternity away from Him. It's the reason they are in hell. It has not been forgiven. It has not been cleansed. So, The promises here are for those who are in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, the promise is, if you confess your sins, hey, God is faithful to forgive you your sin. Everyone who's a true believer can have confidence that God will be faithful to His promise that He will forgive you. What great joy. In fact, one of the biggest reasons that we conceal sin is because we're afraid of rejection. And John is saying here, no, no, no. If you confess it, you will be forgiven. Here's some verses that you should jot down. I'll just read them. Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God is faithful to forgive how about Psalm 130, verse 3 through 4, which says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. How about Psalm, or I'm sorry, Micah chapter 7, verse 18 through 19. Awesome verses on the forgiveness of God. Micah seven, eighteen through nineteen. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread over our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If you confess your sins, God is faithful to forgive you your sins. Amen. Second thing. If you confess your sins, not con- if you confess your sin, God is just to forgive your sins. So He's not just faithful because this this poses an issue. This is why John says it. He hasn't stopped being a just God by forgiving you your sin. How can a holy, just God forgive sins, pass over, pardon, clear slate, and still be just? For God to be just, sin must be punished. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. When we, Just in case you don't understand, when we're talking about being justified, it means being made right. You're declared righteous before God. So the, the problem, the conundrum at hand, is that those who are in Christ, you are sinful. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. God is holy and just. He must punish and pour out His wrath on iniquity. And yet God, who is a holy God, who can have nothing impure in his presence, in his companionship, looks on a filthy, wretched sinner and says, It's okay. I forgive it. How are you a just God to do that? No just judge can do that. That's the problem. Verse 25, or verse 24, but you're justified by God's grace as a gift. How? Here's here's The promise, or here's the answer. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, big word, by His blood to be received by faith. We're going to talk about what this means. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, passing over, covering hiding, concealing of former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, Christ, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Alright, let me explain this. God is so holy and our sin is so dreadful that an enormous payment must be made if He is to pardon us without sacrificing His holiness. While God is not obligated to forgive us, if He so chooses according to His will to forgive us, He cannot violate His character in doing so. Scripture tells us repeatedly that our just God, in Numbers 14 and verse 18, will not clear the guilty. He will not let sinners go off scot-free. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says the same thing. Just as a human judge is unjust if he does not punish convicted criminals with a just sentence, the Lord would be unjust if he simply just said, it's okay. Before Jesus, this is the propitiation, the forbearance, God passed over sins. Justice in the Old Testament before Jesus was not fully done when people sacrificed bulls and goats. God accepted these offerings in His great forbearance because He knew His Son would offer the complete necessary atonement to appease His wrath. So with Jesus as our payment... With Jesus as our propitiation, the Lord vindicated His righteousness, ensuring that God remains just as He becomes the justifier of sinners who believe in Jesus Christ by pouring out His wrath on His Son as His Son took on all the sin of all His people and God crushed His Son. Sin was paid for. If you are in Christ... You didn't get off scot free as if no payment was made. God killed his son in order that you, who were a sinner, might become righteous through Christ. God provides what sinners need to be righteous in his sight without compromising his justice. When we are accounted righteous in Christ, justice is still done, but we do not feel the punishment our sin deserves. Instead, Jesus suffered in our place. So here's why you can confess your sin. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're in Christ today, Christ paid the full payment, took on the full wrath of God that you deserved 2,000 years ago. So you don't have to conceal your sin because God is faithful to forgive you your sin. And in, in his faithfulness, He hasn't stopped being God. He's still a just, righteous God. Number three. Two final ones and we're done. We'll go to small groups and talk about this. God is faithful to forgive our sins. God is just to forgive our sins. The third part you see in this verse is God is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is the part I've been waiting for and excited about. You have all the warnings But here you have the great exhortation and encouragement. Here's what John is not doing in this verse. He's not saying the same thing twice. What does the verse say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, there's two things happening here. If we confess our sins, God will forgive our sins and God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They are indeed two separate things, though they are hand in hand. And in doing both, you see God is faithful and just in both things. So, we don't conceal our sin, we confess our sin thoroughly because God is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think of the word faithful. God is reliable, trustworthy, unchanging, immutable, as Hebrews 6 says. And He does not lie. He's faithful to His promise and to His purpose. He's faithful to Himself. God has promised not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us. This is the beauty of confession. When it's brought to the light, God isn't just going, oh, it's okay. He's going, I forgive you in Christ. I crushed my son. You have his righteousness. And this means that I am also going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, leading you in sanctification. I'm faithful not just to forgive you. What a crummy gospel it would be if we were just forgiven, but then we lived in the misery of increased sin, and more and more shame and guilt, and we had no hope that we would ever actually become in living what we are in standing before God. What a crummy gospel. And God says, I'm not only faithful to forgive you your sin, if you confess it, I'm faithful to cleanse you. He's promised to sanctify us, to cause us to become more like Christ. To bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's promised. He will cause us to grow in godliness. Hey, don't conceal your sin. Confess it. I'll forgive you and I'll, as David said, lead you in the way everlasting. Don't take my word for it. The Bible says it. Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, Paul said. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But perhaps the best verse to see this is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23-24, through which says this. Now may the God... Of peace himself. Sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you. Is what? Faithful. He will surely do it. If you confess your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And he's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. He will sanctify you completely, which means this. When you open up the word of God, you're abiding God's word, and it's exposing sin. And somebody comes to you, and they rebuke you and sin, or your sin, or you are made aware of sin in your own life. You don't have to fear. You, in confidence, can confess that sin before the Lord and others, if necessary, knowing you're forgiven in Christ. But not just that. He's promised, hey, I'm going to so work in you that you won't keep going back if you're truly in Christ. You will be sanctified. When you read the imperatives, the commands in scripture, be holy as I am holy, you can know that is a hope-filled verse because I will be holy because God will do it in me. He's faithful. He will do it. But we haven't even gotten to the best part yet. This is it. The closing point, number four. If you confess your sins, He is faithful to forgive you your sins. He is just to forgive you your sins. He's faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And He is just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now hang with me here. The beginning of this verse, He does two things based on the fact that He is faithful. He's a faithful God and He is a just God. And, and, and watch this. God's faithfulness... And his justice are at stake in his forgiving his people and him cleansing his people. This is one of the most overlooked, overlooked parts of this text and sanctification in scripture. As John would probably say, though, it's what offers the most joy and assurance in salvation. We covered above that God justifies us in a way that does not compromise His character. He's just and the justifier of the wicked, in such a way that God is still God. He's still holy, He's still just. Well, this means that God must be just by cleansing us from all unrighteousness. In other words, in other words, the Bible reveals that God is not just to overlook sin and not. Pour out his wrath on sin. And he is also not just, listen to me, he's also not just to allow those in Christ to remain in sin. This is huge. God is not a just God if those in Christ remain in darkness. Because he's promised he will sanctify us. He's faithful to himself. Therefore, as we just saw in verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians, God himself will sanctify us completely. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Well, what does this imply? What does this imply? It implies this. If God does not sanctify us, he's unfaithful. Hence, he's no longer just. Meaning, he's no longer God. The beauty of sanctification isn't just that God has forgiven us and is faithful, but rather that the very character of God is on the line in your sanctification. God's character, His holiness, His righteousness, His justice is on the line in your sanctification. If God does not create a clean heart in you and you are a believer, if he doesn't stir up new affections in your heart and you've been given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, if he doesn't lead you into further grace and knowledge, he ceases to be God. He would no longer be holy. He would no longer be faithful and he would no longer be just. This is why John is so adamant in 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. It's also the point of verse 10. Right here, after verse 9. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Well, we know God is not a liar. That's the point. We're we're basically saying, you're a liar. And the word is not in us. In other words, if we do not confess our sin, if we do not come to the light, and yet we say that we have fellowship with him while we're still in sin, We are lying, not God. This has to be the case because God does not lie. If we were able to walk in the light but with hidden concealed darkness, God would not be just. God is not a just God for a person in Christ to remain in sin. This is the point of John's section here. Not mainly to warn you, but mainly to encourage those who are struggling with sin to encourage people to come to the light, to encourage believers in their walk that God's faithful and God is just. He will surely forgive you. He will surely you, cleanse you. But if you remain in the darkness, you do not have that promise. That's the point. If you remain here, hiding, concealing, lying, you don't have that assurance. But if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive you, He's just in forgiving you. He's faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness because he is just in cleansing you from all unrighteousness. So confess our sins. The most hopeful verse, in my opinion, in 1, John, in 1 John is chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to end with a verse in Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. Let me say that again. Whoever conceals his sin, his iniquity, will not prosper. But, he who confesses and forsakes it, them, the sin, will obtain mercy. Amen. So you can... Go to bed tonight. Wake up in the morning. As if you're a believer in Christ. If Christ has saved you. If you're regenerate. And you can have confidence. You don't have to be afraid of hiding sin. You don't have to feel defeated in continual habitual sin. And if you have struggled and you've not confessed to sin. Go to an older, wiser, mature brother or sister. And, and listen to me. Listen to me. An older, wiser, mature mature, godly brother or sister who will hold things in confidence and who will love you, right? Not one that will slander and gossip. If you need to confess and ask for forgiveness from people, if you need to take your confession to the next level, you do so, and you don't have to fear. Hidden sin, you don't prosper. Exposed, confessed sin that comes to the light, forgiven, forgiven, God's faithful and just, cleansed, faithful and just. And that is the hope for me. What confidence I can have that I will continue to be more like Christ because his name is on the line. He is faithful. He will surely do it in you. Praise the Lord for that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go to small groups. We'll divide it how we typically do. So this side of the room, which one's going down there tonight? Who stayed here last time? Tyler, why don't you go down there? All right, so this, this side, we'll go with Tyler down there. This side will stay with Juice in here. And if we have a, one larger group than the other, we can work that out. Let's pray. God, I pray for great discussion and conversation out of this. A lot of this may seem elementary, but I believe that our cause and motive for confession is crucial to us experiencing the joys of salvation. The defeating sin. The protection from false teachers. The assurance of salvation. As believers, we should not live defeated, dull, sad, discouraged lives, even in suffering. But rather, we should know that You are faithful to Yourself first, you will surely sanctify us completely. You are faithful. You are just. I pray that you'll give us a new confidence as we look at sin in our own life. And and God, I pray that that confidence will only come to those who are believers. There is a warning here too, Lord. Those who are not in Christ, they they will not prosper, Proverbs 28 says. They're living in darkness. They're deceiving themselves. They're lying. Oh God, would you bring them to light and help them to see that by your Grace, by your Spirit, through faith, they can too experience mercy and joy and forgiveness and cleansing. All oh, we need it in our life. Would you do it for your name's sake? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can head to small groups.